Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. True North True Crime is now available on Patreon. You can now listen to exclusive bonus episodes, early release episodes, and ad-free episodes by signing up at patreon.com slash tntcpod. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. We grew up in Burnaby, and my dad was a musician, and my grandparents are musicians, and Stacy was a beautiful singer, and she had grade 7 Royal Conservatory in piano, and she played clarinet in the school band, and she just loved loved music and she was um, a straight A honor roll student did very well um, she'd just taken an accounting and computers course before um, before she was murdered and so yeah she was really funny and very sensitive and she'd help anybody out with anything and just a bright little light in the world in 1995 a woman was murdered in the basement of her family home At just 22 years old, she had her whole life ahead of her. By the time the RCMP had a suspect, the man had already fled the country. But there's an old expression that the Mounties always get their man. And in this case, it was true. There was an arrest and a guilty verdict. But the pain and trauma on the family members left behind continues to linger to this day. Tonight... We present the murder of Stacy Kohler, and you are listening to True Nor True Crime. Hello, everyone, and welcome to True North True Crime. Thank you for joining us. Before we get started tonight, we want to remind you that if you're looking for bonus content, you can sign up for our Patreon feed by going to patreon.com slash tntcpod. We recently covered some very interesting cases that we released on Patreon only. So if you want access to those, head on over. We also want you to know that we do take case suggestions and we always prioritize cases that come to us from family members or direct contacts of those cases. You can always send us a case request at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. Okay, let's get into tonight's episode.
tonight we are talking about the 1995 murder of Stacy Kohler. At the time of her murder, Stacy was just 22 years old, and she was living in Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada. This investigation has a few twists and turns, but eventually the RCMP arrested a suspect who was convicted for Stacy's murder. We were approached by a family member of Stacy's to cover this case. The convicted murderer named Armand Michael Prohl, that's spelled P-R-O-U-L-X, is currently incarcerated. However, he has recently appealed a parole board decision that will keep him in prison. He's trying to get out. The family wanted some help getting the word out about this case in hopes that more people will learn about Stacy. We put this episode together using both Canadian and UK court documents. We also spoke with Danny, who is Stacy's sister. As an additional content warning, this episode contains graphic descriptions of a violent assault and violence towards women. This case takes place in 1995 in Burnaby, British Columbia. In 1992, Burnaby gained status as a city. This made it a municipality of Metro Vancouver. Burnaby is BC's third largest city. In 1995, Burnaby was a great place to raise a family. There was still a strong neighborhood feel to the city with many hardworking British Columbians working and living in the area. Crime has never been what people would consider bad in Burnaby. In fact, it's a pretty safe place. Stacy Kohler was born and raised in Burnaby. She was born on March 15, 1973. She lived in her family home in Burnaby with her mom and dad. She was the middle child of three siblings with her younger brother Stephen and her older sister Danny. The Kohlers were a family of musical talents. This talent did not skip Stacy. She was an amazing singer and she played clarinet and piano. Her musical talents were encouraged by her family and her teachers. In fact, in grade 7, she played clarinet and piano at a conservatory level. Stacy was also an honor roll student at Caribou High School in Burnaby. As a person, she was sensitive and funny. She would offer help to her friends and family if they needed it. When we spoke to her sister, Danny, she stated that Stacy was, quote, pretty perfect. We actually spoke to someone who went to school with Stacy and Danny as well, and they stated that the Kohlers were a great family of good people kind and generous. The love of music continued into Stacy's adult years. She loved nightlife, she liked live music venues, and getting a chance to sing on stage. In 1995, Stacy had taken over the basement of her family home as her own living space. The basement was open to the home and not a separate suite. Like many artists, Stacy had a day job, she was working as a manager at a KFC or Kentucky Fried Chicken in New Westminster. Now, many listeners may have negative flashbacks to their own fast food jobs, but Stacy, she excelled as part of the team. She was promoted and highly thought of by her KFC family. Stacy was also in a relationship in 1995 with a young man named Brendan. We asked Stacy's sister, Danny, what life was like for Stacy in 1995. She just, she was, she, I remember she did a gig one night at the Big Bamboo down on uh, broad, the old Broadway. So she, she just really loved to sing and be around a bunch of musical people and studied. And she had just bought a brand new car. I remember that it was an, it was a neon, 95 neon. Um, so yeah, she, she was still working at the KFC. I think she was the manager there. 
um, when this happened. And she was just, I think, just starting to figure out where life was going to go. So in 1995, Stacy was living in the basement of her family home in Burnaby. She was a manager at KFC, and she was also pursuing gigs in Vancouver's live music scene. She had a boyfriend and close ties with her family. She had just finished a computer-based course in a post-secondary setting. At the age of 22, things were going really well for Stacy. On March 15, 1995, Stacy turned 22. Danny told us more about the days leading up to her sister's homicide. Well, her birthday is March 15th. And she was murdered March 26th. So there was lots of celebrating um, her birthday going on. She liked to go out to nightclubs and dance and all that kind of stuff. And she just worked really hard. She had her boyfriend, Brendan, I think for about, I think they were together for two and a half years. They were very happy together. We would have, um, she'd come over and we'd make uh, homemade seafood fettuccine and play Pictionary. We'd have game nights. And my son's dad, George, was her best friend, Stacy's best friend. So it was kind of cool to have her sister with her best friend. So yeah, we were very, very close. And I had just had my son just over a year before um, she was murdered. So we spent a lot of, like, she was a very proud auntie and loved showing him off and spending time with him. So during the week of March 15th, Stacy was celebrating turning 22, and she was a proud aunt at the time. There was one incident that occurred in the weeks leading up to her murder that was concerning. One night, Stacy and her boyfriend, Brendan, were in bed together in the basement of the Kohler home. They both felt that something was wrong. They heard a noise or had a feeling. At that point, they both looked out of the basement window. There, standing outside the window, they saw a man staring at them. Brendan quickly got dressed and went outside to confront the man, but the man ran away. He was dressed in dark clothing, and Brendan, nor Stacy, could identify him. We now believe that this was the man responsible for murdering Stacy. The week leading up to March 26, 1995, Stacy had the home to herself as her parents were away. We asked Annie if there was anything different about that week. The only thing I can say is that... Um but I think this was normal for her. Brendan, her boyfriend, had said that that particular day, because my parents were away and my brother was away, and Brendan, you know, she was going to work and and um, she made sure that all the doors and windows were locked. Like everything was very secure for her when she got home. And I don't know if that was maybe, I don't know, you know, I don't know if that was her maybe not feeling safe or if that's just something that she always did. So on March 25th, 1995, Stacy worked her job at KFC in New Westminster. When her shift was over, she went home. She had gotten off early that night. She changed out of her KFC uniform and put on some satin pajamas and some lingerie. She poured herself a glass of wine and settled in for a quiet night. Her boyfriend, Brendan, had a soccer game with his local club that night. He had planned to have some drinks with his team after the game and then stay with Stacy. Stacy sipped on her wine, possibly finishing half a bottle. The night kept getting later, and Brendan had not come home yet. This was an era without cell phones, so she had no way of knowing where he was. Brendan, as it turns out, was having more than a few drinks with his team, and he missed the last bus to Burnaby. What happened next is not entirely clear, but something must have startled Stacy. 
she quickly put on some jogging pants over her pajamas and went to the front door. There was no sign of forced entry, so it is assumed that she knew who had come to the door in the middle of the night. The assailant then attacked Stacy with a barbell from a weight set in the basement. He struck her twice in the front of the head, then twice to the back of the head. He then took the barbell and used it to crush Stacy's throat. The blows to the back of her head would prove to be fatal. The attacker struck her with such force that sand poured into her body and skull from the sand-filled weights that had broken on impact. Stacy lay on the basement floor, dead. Her top had been ripped open, suggesting a sexual motive to the crime. The murderer then put the weights and the dumbbell bar into a bag. The killer then walked out of the door. He made sure to wipe any fingerprints and lock it from the inside as he left. It is believed that he walked down the alleyway and dropped the murder weapon into a nearby dumpster. This weapon has never been found. Brendan made his way down the street in the early morning hours of March 26th. When he approached the home, he saw Stacy's car in the driveway. Danny told us what happened next. Um, her boyfriend, Brendan, found her. <clears throat> um, so that's, that's a story as well. He was supposed to be home, I think, at one or two. He'd played soccer, went to the club with, the, with um, all the boys, and he stayed late. He'd been drinking, and he walked home. He didn't have a car, and there were no buses running. There were no cell phones back in 1995, or if there were, they weren't, you know, everybody didn't have them, and there's no pay phones or anything around. So he showed up at the house. Her brand new car was out front. She's supposed to be home. She's expecting him. The lights are on. He could see the TV was on, but she wasn't answering. So um, he wrote slut to her bitch in the dew on her windshield and then let the air out of one of her tires. He said he was going to leave. He'd walked up the street and he's like, where am I going? So then he thought she was maybe in there with another guy. So he broke the window, smashed the basement window, got in and found her bludgeoned to death. And he freaked out, lost it. I think he called his mom first and then he called the police. And the poor soul was the number one suspect for a long, well, a while. So Brendan came home to a locked door. When he saw the TV on, he assumed that Stacy was cheating on him. This assumption made him angry. Keep in mind, he had been drinking that night. He wrote slut or bitch on Stacy's car, let the air out of the tires, and then left, but then returned. He broke a basement window, assuming he would find Stacy in bed with another man. Instead, he found her dead on the floor. After speaking to his mom, he phoned the police. Unfortunately for Brendan, his vandalism of the car and the broken basement window would make him the number one suspect. As the sun began to rise in Burnaby, the RCMP taped off the home and began their investigation. At the scene was Stacy lying on the ground with her top ripped open and her body and skull covered in sand from the weight. There was half a bottle of wine, a missing dumbbell from the weight set. Her car had been vandalized and the basement window was smashed inwards. The RCMP took Brendan in for questioning. Danny remembers coming home to the family home that morning and what she saw, and what she felt. Probably like the worst day of my life. I um, took my son and my boyfriend at the time, and we went to Safeway. We got 
ice cream and fresh strawberries. We're going to make milkshakes. And then we went to Burnaby Lake um, to see the, the ducks and birds and wildlife. And then I went home and I saw a police car kind of parked out front. And I'm like, oh, that looks like my uncle's um, truck. And then I went in and there were two Burnaby RCMP standing in my living room. And my looked like my uncle and my um, cousin and my son's dad had been crying. And I was like, oh, crap, did they do something? I thought maybe they'd done something wrong. And then my uncle came into the kitchen and he put his arms on my shoulder and he said, Stacy's been murdered. And I just kind of, and I just wanted everybody to leave because I thought they were all lying. And it's the most horrible, disgusting thing that they could do was to say something like that. We're now going to take a quick break to hear from this week's sponsors. When we return, we will talk about the investigation into Stacy's murder and the impact her loss had on her family. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And we are back. So before the break, we outlined the life of Stacy Kohler. Stacy was 22 years old. She worked as a manager at KFC, and she was a talented musician and a huge part of her family. In the early morning hours of March 26, 1995, Stacy was murdered in the basement of her family home. The number one suspect for a long time in the investigation was her boyfriend, Brendan. Brendan had displayed some aggressive tendencies that night that concerned law enforcement. However, if it wasn't for Brendan breaking the window that night, we don't know who would have found Stacy or when. Brendan was interviewed by the RCMP and was cooperative with the investigation. Even though their instinct was to charge Brendan, the RCMP and Crown struggled to build a case against him. So they interviewed a few more people, including a young man named Armin Michael Prohl. Most people, including Stacy's family, knew him simply as Mike. So who is Mike? I knew him very well. I went to elementary school and high school with him. I mean, we, we didn't have numbers and stuff like that, but with... Um, there were the rumors that he had attacked a girl from school a couple of years prior. There were rumors. My sister always believed the best in everybody. So she didn't really believe it. I'm not the same. So I always had a bad, uneasy feeling around him. I never trusted him. Stacy, um, you know, always saw the good in people. I probably even, I think I did even say, you know, be careful of him. 
Mike went to school with the Kohler kids. In fact, he lived two blocks away. He also worked with Stacy at KFC, and she was his manager. Three days after Stacy's death, Danny needed a babysitter, and Mike offered to babysit for her. He attended Stacy's funeral holding the hands of mourners at the side of Stacy's coffin. To everyone there, he was a supportive friend. But there were always rumors about Mike. There was one about a girl that was attacked a year or so earlier. Then there were also rumors about inappropriate behavior around children in his extended family. As he was never charged and no information was public, most people just shrugged these off as rumors or at worst kept their distance from him. No one would know the depth of the darkness that lurked inside of Mike. Mike was brought in for questioning by the Burnaby RCMP and he was able to offer them an alibi. He was with his girlfriend, Trish, that night. But by September of 1995, friends who had been discussing Stacy's murder started to notice that Mike had been providing conflicting information about where he was that night. Then the RCMP received information from Trish that she wanted to change her statement. She was not, in fact, with Mike that night. She was in an abusive relationship with him. She feared Mike and provided the RCMP with a fake alibi on his demand. By the time the RCMP were ready to interview Mike again, he was gone. Rumors spread that he had sold all of his belongings and moved to Mexico. This was true, but he didn't stay there. Eventually, he fled to the seaside resort town of Folkestone, England, in the United Kingdom. Although Mike was in England illegally, he did manage to find some work. He got a job at a local community center as a bingo caller. In December of 1996, while Mike was working at the bingo hall, a young woman named Wendy gave him a Christmas card. Inside of the card was her phone number. The two began dating shortly afterwards. Keep in mind that Mike had no supports or connections in England, so attaching himself to another human and their life, like a parasite, was a calculated move. Things moved quickly for the new couple. One night in the bingo hall while folks were enjoying a game, there was a special announcement from Mike, the bingo caller. Over the microphone, Mike asked Wendy to marry him, and she accepted. Immediately, Mike moved in with Wendy, Wendy's mother, and her brother. He even got a new job. He started working as a care aide at an inpatient support center for people with special needs. This included seniors and other vulnerable adults. Things were going great for Mike. The RCMP had no idea where he was, and he had a whole new life. But he made one mistake. And this one mistake would lead to many others, until his plan fell like a house of cards. The RCMP had a contact within the KFC offices in Toronto named Michelle. She was actually from Burnaby and was familiar with Stacy's murder. Michelle had helped in the investigation by providing the RCMP with files of KFC workers in Burnaby and New Westminster. After being transferred to the Toronto office, Michelle came across an interesting reference request. A Canadian man applied for a job at a KFC in Folkestone, England. On the man's application, he stated that he worked for the chain in New Westminster. When Michelle read the request, she saw the name Michael Prohl. She immediately called the Burnaby RCMP and reported what she had learned. A member of the RCMP stated, If he had never gone to the Kentucky Fried Chicken in Folkestone, we never would have located him. So, the RCMP now knew where he was, but they did not have enough evidence to charge him with any crimes. 
They couldn't even invite him in for an interview. They were stuck. Meanwhile, back in Burnaby, Danny and her family grappled with the grief of their loss. I remember me and my brother, we were at Brentwood Mall shortly after, and I remember just looking at everybody, the faces, people walking by, and I'm like, it could be you, it could be you. Like, it really steals your safety in the world because there's bad people out there. You know that, but you don't really know that until, you know, it affects you, you know, firsthand, I guess. As the Kohler family were dealing with the unimaginable grief of losing Stacy, the RCMP were applying for a special sting operation to get a confession from Mike and bring him back to Canada for justice. Mr. Big operations or Mr. Big stings are a tool used by the Canadian police to take down targets. In the typical Mr. Big sting, the target of the sting finds himself with a new group of friends, usually one or two people. These new friends are undercover detectives. These people start off as friends. Once they gain trust of the target, the undercovers tell the target that they are part of the crime world. Once the target agrees that they also want to be in the crime world, the undercover detectives give them small tasks to do, like delivering a package or retrieving a bag of money. The target is then paid and taken out for nice meals. They now believe that they are working their way up in a crime syndicate. Eventually, as the target works his way up in the crime family, he is asked to confess all of his crimes to a high-up boss known as Mr. Big. The legality of Mr. Big stings has been tested many times in Canadian courts. However, they still remain legal within certain parameters. The UK do not run Mr. Big stings, so the legalities of such an enterprise needed to be ironed out before the sting could be activated. The Canadian RCMP contacted Scotland Yard and asked if they would be willing to partner with them, running a Mr. Big sting on Mike. UK law enforcement agreed, and the project was launched. The following information is from the UK court document outlining the scheme. The purpose of the operation was to obtain evidence of Mike's involvement in Stacey Kohler's murder. The operation was under the control of two senior police officers of the Kent Constabulary. Contact with Mike was made by an RCMP investigator working undercover. He introduced himself to Mike as Woody. Later, two undercover police women were introduced to Mike as Maxine and Alex. None of the officers knew anything about the circumstances of Stacy's death other than she had been killed in circumstances of a suspected murder. Woody and Maxine met Mike for the first time on the 12th of June, 1998. They presented as people from the criminal world who had the ability to create work. On the 17th of June, they met Mike at a pub, and Mike agreed to assist Woody with a bit of work he was doing in London. On the 19th of June, Mike accompanied Woody to a meeting at which Woody handed over a package to a man who was, in fact, another undercover police officer. Mike was paid £60 for his involvement in this meeting. On the 20th of June, Woody arranged with Mike to obtain a post office box to receive packages delivered to it. Woody gave Mike £100. Mike questioned the legitimacy of the business, and Woody responded by asking whether that concerned him. When Woody asked if Mike had been involved in anything else dodgy, Mike said, "'Stealing cars when I was young.'" Woody left England on the 23rd of June in 1998 and did not return until the 11th of August of the same year. While Woody was away, Mike rented a post office box. 
Two packages were sent to the post office box from Canada. Mike informed an undercover agent that the packages had arrived. The packages were collected, and Mike was paid £40 on each occasion. On the 18th of August, Woody and Mike traveled to Dover. The purpose of this trip was for Woody to recover a debt owed by a woman to the man for whom Woody worked, a man known as Mac. This Mac character would be the Mr. Big in this sting. Mike was led to believe that Mac was a Canadian criminal. Later, Woody indicated that he had sorted out the girl who owed Mac and in answer to the question, what do you do if someone does not pay? Woody said, kneecap them. On the 19th of August, Mike was introduced to a woman, an undercover officer named Alex, whose role it was to befriend, flirt, and generally show an interest in him. Mike found Alex very attractive. He later told Woody that he loved her and that he was unhappy in his new marriage to Wendy. Alex, the undercover investigator, continued to pretend to show an interest in Mike. It was now that Mike began to slowly share more information about his past in Burnaby to the undercover officers. Mike told Woody that he had assaulted his former girlfriend's new boyfriend and told the police it was self-defense. The sting continued. On the 20th of August... Mike spent the day with Woody, Maxine, and Alex. Mike was paid £60 for his part in assisting Woody to retrieve a bag from a parked vehicle. On the 21st of August, Mike took delivery of a briefcase at a hotel for which he was paid £75. That afternoon was spent with Mike, Woody, Maxine, and Alex at the Grand Hotel in Folkestone. Mike drank three cans of beer. During the course of the afternoon, Mac, or Mr. Big, made a telephone call to Woody, who was with Mike. Mike overheard Woody talking to Mac, and the conversation suggested that Mac had been checking out Mike's past and had discovered something relevant in connection with a murder of a woman in Burnaby. After concluding his conversation with Mac, Woody sent Maxine and Alex away and told Mike that he had not been completely honest with them. Woody stated that they needed the absolute truth from him or he could no longer be in the gang. This means that Mike would lose his new income, his new friends, and possibly Alex, the undercover officer who he was now in love with. When pressed, Mike stated, Is it something to do with a murder? Woody replied, Could be. During the next 10 or 15 minutes, Mike repeatedly denied being involved in any murder. Woody emphasized that all that mattered was honesty and that Mac was going to check out whatever he said. Woody went on to say, quote, I mean, the thing is, it's okay, hypothetically, again, if you're the man responsible for whatever, as long as there was a good reason and you would probably be put on a pedestal, you know what I mean? In Mac's eyes, you know? Like, how can I put this? It's sort of a rite of passage. Do you understand what I mean? Like, there would be no reason to check you out any further, as long as it was for the right reason. If it was for the wrong reason, then it might be a different story, but everything happens for a reason, they say. So essentially, Woody was saying, like, it's okay if you murdered someone, just admit it to us, it's all good. So Mike finally admitted that he had committed the murder of Stacy Kohler. He said that he did so because Stacy's boyfriend had owed him $3,000. He described how he had gone wild and carried out the killing by hitting her with plastic dumbbells and single weights, which he had 
found on the premises. These details were not released to the public. He stated that he had left the basement and wiped down the door handle to avoid fingerprints. He explained how he had taken the dumbbells with him and disposed of them in a dumpster about two miles away. Mike insisted that what he had told Woody was the truth and that he did not just make it up in order to join Mac's family. Mike went on to say that he was glad that he had got it off his chest. The following day, the 22nd of August, 1998, Mike repeated that he had killed Stacy Kohler. However, he gave a new motive, stating that someone had told him that Stacy's boyfriend, Brendan, had been kissing Trish, his former girlfriend, at a party about a month before the killing. Quote, So I went completely, like I said, enraged, like completely lost it, because I was quite jealous when I was young. The meetings on the 21st and the 22nd of August were both video recorded and audio recorded. On the 25th of August, 1998, a warrant for Mike's arrest was issued in Canada. This was the first time that Danny and her family heard that Mike was involved with Stacy's death, and the first time they had heard the details of the murder publicly. Oh yes, it was, I believe, like three years later after the of the RCMP, the British Constabulary in Scotland Yard um, charged him and brought him in. Then we knew. But they didn't, we didn't know. We didn't know how exactly she died until the hearing and the coroner's report. No, they didn't, we don't get any information. On August 27th, 1998, a UK court issued an arrest warrant. On the 9th of November, 1998, the Secretary of State issued an authority to proceed with the extradition of Armand Michael Prohl. Mike and his defense team tried to fight the extradition to Canada for five years. However, all of his appeals were denied. On June 19, 2003, eight years after Stacey's murder, Mike was escorted by British police officers to Heathrow Airport and onto an Air Canada aircraft, which was bound for Vancouver. Mike was turned over to two RCMP officers who had just been assigned to escort him back to Canada. Having taken control of Mike, the officers immediately gave him his charter warning and caution. When asked if he wished to consult a lawyer, Mike said that he did. He was told that he would be permitted to do so as soon as they reached the RCMP detachment in Burnaby. As the accused had stated unequivocally that he wished to consult a lawyer, and as that was not to be done until he arrived in Burnaby, the two officers were careful not to attempt to elicit evidence or a confession from him while they were on the plane. So upon arrival at the Vancouver airport, the constables turned Mike over to a driver of an RCMP van, thinking that Mike would be taken to Burnaby. Unbeknownst to the officers from that flight, another RCMP officer had devised a plan to place an undercover policeman into the van to begin to cultivate a relationship with Mike, which the officer hoped would lead to further incriminating statements. So they had a guy in the back of the van pretending to be another criminal also being transported. Mike made various statements to that undercover officer in the van. Later in Burnaby, after a short telephone conversation with his lawyer, Mike made more statements to the same undercover officer who was placed in the same cell as him. And then after a face-to-face -face meeting with his lawyer a few hours later, he made more statements to that same undercover officer who he believed was his cellmate. 
Now, unfortunately, these statements that were made to the undercover officer in the Burnaby detachment are not public record. We believe that these statements were admissions of guilt and knowledge of Stacy's murder. However, they did not appear in the trial. So Mike confessed to murdering Stacy twice to the undercover officers in the UK. Then upon his arrival in Vancouver, he confessed three more times to a different undercover officer. However, on June 31st, 2003, the judge in this case ruled on the admissibility of all of the confessions. The judge ruled that any statements made to the undercover at the Burnaby detachment, the van, and the cell would not be allowed in the trial. He did, however, allow all of the statements and the confession from the UK Mr. Big Sting. So with all of that, the trial was set to begin. Danny described to us that the family and the prosecutors were confident with their case. However, they were tense. The entire case against Mike was based on the UK confessions. The family and Crown worried that any technicality could set Mike free. However, Mike had a propensity for talking. He admitted one more time to a Crown witness that he had in fact murdered Stacy. This story is pretty unbelievable, but it involves Mike smoking a joint and having a panic attack. We'll let Danny describe it. The trial part was so um, short. The preliminary hearing, I got so much information and, and whatnot. That was like where the, he was open and we got, you know, we knew what was going on. The voyeur was just kind of, they had the Scotland Yard and British Constabulary come over. They needed to make sure that everything was done properly internationally. And we were all very scared that it might get thrown out over some stupid technicality after all of this work had gone into um, charging him and getting him home. But everybody did everything exactly the way it was meant to be. There was no hiccups or problems. Um, I know, I don't think they had enough on Mike without a confession. And that's why they had to get the confession. And then um, I was telling you the story earlier about Stacy's first boyfriend um, was a corrections officer and Mike, while the trial was going on, I guess had smoked some weed and thought he was having a heart attack. So they took him to the hospital in the ambulance. He told uh, my sister's first boyfriend, which Mike didn't know, um, that tell Mr. Kohler, I'm sorry. Um, I didn't mean to kill her and all that stuff. So he had confessed again in front of the corrections officer, the corrections officer that um, that I know that was that dated my sister. I talked to him actually about a year ago and he gave me a ton of more information. But he said as soon as Mike had said that, that um, he knew that he had to find a police officer and thank God there was a police officer in the hospital because he had to confess to a police officer to make it official or legal or to make it stick. So um, everything worked out that day. And that's why the very next day we started the trial and he changed his, his plea. So to recap here, the Crown was confident in their case. However, things happen at trial that can sometimes derail a prosecution. Mike entered a plea of not guilty. Then, in the midst of the pre-trial hearings in January of 2005, Mike complained of chest pains after getting high in prison. In the ambulance on the way to the hospital, he stated to the corrections officer and the paramedic that, I killed Stacy Kohler. So the corrections officer was a friend of the Kohler family. And at the hospital, he grabbed a police officer so that Mike could once again confess to killing Stacy, and he did. 
At the hospital, he stated, I never meant for any of this to happen. I wish I could bring her back. Tell Stacy's father I'm sorry. The next day at the trial, Mike's defense team changed their plea to guilty and stated that Mike went to Stacy's home that night to ask her out. The defense team said, quote, on that night, he couldn't handle the rejection. He couldn't handle the jealousy. So just to be clear, Mike had said previously that his motives were that Brendan owed him money or that Brendan kissed his girlfriend. This is why he's killed Stacy, and these were untrue. Mike was motivated by sex and gender-directed violence. Stacy was happy and in love, and she was not interested in Mike romantically. Mike hated that, so he killed her. Mike, the man who went to school with Danny and Stacy and Stephen, the man who babysat Danny's child, the man who went to the funeral and mourned with his high school friends, the man who lived just two blocks away, was guilty of Stacy's murder. In 2005, Mike was sentenced to serve life for the second-degree murder of Stacy Kohler. He was given a parole ineligibility starting at 13 years. But here's something noteworthy. They allowed his parole ineligibility clock to start from the day of his arrest in the UK in 1998. So even though he was convicted in Canada in 2005, his parole clock was rolled back to 1998, meaning that he was able to apply for parole beginning in 2011 rather than 2018. And that was that. It was over. Or was it? Over the years, Danny's family have had to deal with endless parole hearings and appeals, sometimes going to William Head Prison three times in one year. Sometimes Mike postpones the hearings that he himself has called. Every time I get a letter, I am filled with anxiety and anger and taken back through all of the emotions of that day and of the trial, you know, like... Um, it's just like a hand reaching through your world, grabbing you and dragging you to someplace you don't want to go. That's what it feels like for me. Um, my dad was very big into, um, into the victim, like into victims and supporting them and helping them and changing laws. I know that it really frustrated him that we had to go through that as well all the time. It feels like all the time. And then, um, my mom she doesn't talk about stuff much, and my brother's never been. We asked Danny about Mike's recent parole hearings that took place in 2022. Oh, yes. Um, he was denied, but we just got a letter that he's appealed, of course, so we're going to have to go through the whole thing again. But um, they basically, he's not taking any um, accountability or responsibility, or it just sounds like he's reading a script. Yeah, I think for the most part, it's his lack of ability to take responsibility or have insight into, um, you know, what he's, he's all, he talks about how this has affected him. This has affected him and his life. And he's, you know, he talks a lot about what he's gone through as a result of murdering Stacy. And I don't think that the parole board sees that as somebody who's rehabilitated. And he also um, isn't doing any of the programming or courses and a therapist said that they would stop seeing him because he wasn't willing to do any work. So all of that kind of stuff came up, I think, for them to make their decision that he's not ready. Few people will ever know the impact that losing a loved one to murder can have on a family. 
Being thrust into the media spotlight and attending endless court dates along with the grief and loss is more than most can bear. We asked Danny about the impact on her family. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, I think like our family will have, will never be the same. You always are missing that, that light or that soul or that energy or that spirit. I mean, my mom and dad, they lost, you know, the joy in their eyes and they never got it back. <clears throat> Sorry. And um, for me, I think just not feeling safe in the world. I was thinking about this. I mean, this was back in 95 and I still don't feel safe. You know, I think it just takes a bit of your innocence and trust in people that um, I haven't fully gotten back. And I think, you know, it's like you want your sister. I don't have a sister anymore. So yeah, and he, and he took an auntie and he took a daughter and he took a niece and a cousin and, you know, he took a lot from a lot of people. And it's not, you know, it's not a scab that, you know, fully ever heals. And two, this constant parole hearings and having him thrown in your face and like, just le like, it's exhausting. And never, it's never, until he's free, it'll, we, we won't be over this and that's pretty sad to say that he has to be free so we can have some peace we asked danny how our listeners can help she felt that anything could help stacy's murder happened before social media gofundmes change petitions and facebook justice groups so the digital footprint on this case is small not all families have the knowledge to build these platforms so if anyone knows how to assist the family reach out to us at true north true crime at gmail.com and we'll pass it along to Danny. Danny also offered her own assistance to anyone going through a similar tragedy. Anything anybody could do to help would be, um, our family, I'm sure every family would have a ton of gratitude for anything anybody could do to help. Because it's, you know, not everybody's in this situation and it's, you know, it's an uphill battle sometimes. But you're so emotional, you're just trying to, you know, get through it that sometimes you don't have the bandwidth or whatever to, to do the other stuff that, that would help. The Cadmans, I was telling you earlier, the Cadman family, Jesse Cadman had been murdered. And when Stacy was murdered, um, his family came and supported us. They were at the funeral with us. I think they even sat in the back with us. And um, I just know that it was just having people that knew exactly what we were going through um, gave me some comfort. And, yeah, so, I mean, if I could ever be there for any other families going through something similar or you're not alone, um, I think that it would be great to have a group of people who wanted to connect with other people that have gone through something similar is a great idea. In 2012, Danny participated in a victim-offender mediation program in which her family sat down with Mike in a mediated approach to some type of restorative justice. While Mike participated and showed remorse, Danny couldn't help but feel that he made it all about himself. How sad he was that his life was ruined. His remorse seems to be as a result of the consequences of the murder that he committed, rather on Stacy's murder itself. We asked Danny what she knew about his life behind bars at William Head Prison. It's a minimum security prison 
located on the southern tip of scenic Vancouver Island. From what I understand, it's like a it's an ocean front slash view condo, minimum security. He's surrounded by the ocean and beautiful deer and they can fish whenever they want. I believe they cook for themselves. So it's just a it's a it's a really beautiful condo overlooking the ocean in um on the island in Victoria. Pretty tough. Don't know how he manages. You'll forgive Danny's slight indulgence into sarcasm. The man who murdered her sister lives in what seems like an ocean view condo while filing a stream of appeals and applications for parole. Before we end this episode, we would like to wholeheartedly thank Danny and members of the Kohler family for trusting us with this story. Stacy was a talented musician, hardworking. She was a new aunt, a sister, a daughter. She was in love, and at the age of 22, she was a kind-hearted person with her whole life ahead of her. We will never know what good she would have brought to this world. As always, we would like to thank you for joining us for this episode of True North True Crime. We will be back soon with a new episode. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.